everyone. I'm Jamie DiPolo, Senior Editor at BreastCancer.org. Our podcast guest today is Dr. William Che, Professor of Internal Medicine and Professor of Nutrition at the University of Michigan, where he leads the Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders Research Group. His research interests include diagnosis and treatment of irritable bowel syndrome, constipation, fecal incontinence, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and H. pylori infection. Dr. Che has written more than 300 manuscripts, reviews, and book chapters. He received his medical degree from Emory University and completed a fellowship in gastroenterology at the University of Michigan. Today, Dr. Che joins us to talk about constipation and ways to manage it. Dr. Che, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jamie. Thanks for having me. We are so thrilled you're here. This is uh, an ongoing topic on our discussion boards. Uh, a lot of people experience constipation. And in fact, one of our discussion board members called constipation the nemesis of cancer patients. So let's start with me asking you why opioids, chemotherapy, so many of the targeted therapy medicines, why is constipation such a common side effect? Yeah, it really is a common side effect, not just for cancer patients, but for just people in general. Realize that somewhere in the order of 12 to 14 percent of the U.S. population uh, reports problems with constipation. So anywhere between one in seven and one in 10, just garden variety individuals. And certainly when you get into a setting where your diet's changed, you're inactive, you're on medications that can affect the contractility of the colon, the nerve function in the wall of the gut, the immune system in the gut, the microbiome in the gut, it shouldn't come as a, as a surprise that constipation is a significant side effect for many cancer patients, whether they're on chemotherapy or not. It's all those things together combined cause it. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't really have a way right now to parse patients on the basis of those different mechanistic explanations for their symptoms. but. Uh, and so it can be any combination of one or more of those things. Another thing that I didn't even mention that's really important and really underrecognized is pelvic floor dysfunction. So the inability to be able to coordinate the muscles in the lower part of the colon and the pelvic floor to be able to normally evacuate stool from the rectum, that's another explanation for uh, problems with constipation. And it's particularly relevant because we're just learning that those reflexes become abnormal in people taking opioids. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's literally brand new research that we'll be presenting at our national meeting in May of 2019. A lot of women have said they have pelvic floor dysfunction to start with, whether they've been diagnosed with anything or not, or are taking medications or not. So then if you add that on top of medications, as you said, it's going to make a problem even worse. That's right. That's right. I had no idea that constipation was that common in society as a whole. It is, it's, it's something that people I think are quite embarrassed to talk about. And for that reason, it really is a silent epidemic. You know, it's, uh, and the other thing that's, that's interesting is of course that constipation becomes more prevalent as one gets older. And given the fact that our population is rapidly aging, think about what's happening with the baby boomers that are all coming into retirement age now. Um, you know, constipation is going to be a real growth industry, you know, whether we like it or not. Um, I always say that two big uh, conditions that we're going to be seeing a lot more of, uh, you know, things that patients won't necessarily volunteer to talk about, but nonetheless are going to be constipation and fecal incontinence. Why is constipation a problem as you get older? Is it just like loss of muscle tone or 
Is there something else? Again, it probably is a combination of different things. So think about this. As we get older, we become less physically active. And we know that physical activity correlates to how frequently you move your bowels. Um, in addition, the function of the GI tract, if you think about it as a long muscle, it probably makes sense that, particularly for people that are constipated through the course of their life, that there may be progressive damage that goes on that leads to more severe problems or unmasks problems that were actually there to a subclinical degree, a degree to which was not appreciated by the patient, but then finally gets to a point where it becomes clinically apparent or more clear that, or the patient feels as if they're constipated. And then the last thing is what we alluded to in the cancer patients, and that is medications in general. Of course, the number and number of medications an individual is taking is linear, linearly related to their age. You know, as we get older, everybody's taking more supplements, more over-the-counter medications, more prescription medications, all of which can lead to constipation in susceptible individuals. At least for breast cancer, getting older is a risk factor for being diagnosed. I am assuming for most cancers that's the case too. So that's on you know, aging again increases that risk as well. Certainly for the most common cancers, uh, maybe not so much lung cancer, but certainly colon cancer and breast cancer, uh, prostate cancer, uh, you, you, that's clearly true. Besides uh, pain, feeling uncomfortable, all the, you know, physical things you feel when you're constipated, can constipation cause any long-term problems for a person? Like if you're, if, if you're constipated and you just kind of don't really treat it, but you know, just kind of handle it. Are you setting yourself up for future problems? You know, we really don't know that. We don't have great longitudinal studies that follow patients for many years at a time. You can imagine how hard that would be to do. But nonetheless, I can tell you that I've been doing this for almost 30 years. So I've followed, I've been following some patients for that long a period of time. And some patients with constipation for that long a period of time. And I can tell you that my own hypothesis is that progressive periods where the colon is stretched with uh, and what we call fecal loading as a person becomes more and more constipated, followed by episodes of purging where people move their bowels sometimes once, sometimes repeatedly. In fact, it's interesting that a lot of patients with constipation will say that they don't move their bowels for several days and then they have diarrhea. And it's not really diarrhea. What it is is that the pressure has gotten high enough in the colon to where literally stuff comes out forcefully. And um, it's really a consequence of the constipation, not true diarrhea. And that's very confusing, I think, to patients. And unfortunately, it's confusing to many doctors. Uh, so for example, if you go in complaining of more frequent loose stools, it's not uncommon for a physician to prescribe Imodium or Loperamide to slow you down. Well, guess what? If your problem is what I described, you just threw gas on a fire. So. Um, uh, there are all these things that need to be taken into consideration, but to answer, to just sort of close the circle on your question, I think that when people go through um, repeated episodes of loading the colon and stretching it out, um, that over time that leads to irreversible damage. And I think so. Uh, do do you get buildup of toxins? I don't think so. But do you get an increased risk for colon cancer? No, we don't think so. I, there's no conclusive evidence for that either. But it is possible that if you leave constipation untreated, 
it could progress over time and actually leave you in a pretty bad place. Now, you brought up doctors may not know what to do. I think, judging from the discussion on our boards, a lot of people expect their oncologists, because this is such a common side effect, that the oncologist should be able to treat, help manage constipation. That's not really the oncologist's area of expertise. So when does someone know, like what, what, when would you recommend someone see a gastroenterologist? Um, is there another doctor that someone should see first? What, what would you recommend as far as a progression? So it clearly will depend on a person's individual situation. There will be some oncologists who will be very comfortable with um, treating constipation. There will be um, some oncologists that won't be as comfortable. So I think the physician and the patient have to have a, a solid relationship in which the patient feels comfortable exchanging that information. Like that would be the first bit of advice that I'd say is that an oncologist is not necessarily going to be thinking about um, whether a patient with cancer has developed diarrhea or constipation. Um, I think diarrhea may be more so because uh, uh, th that can certainly be very debilitating for um, some patients. But constipation, um, you know, may or may not be addressed uh, by the oncology team. So I think the patient has to feel comfortable talking about that uh, with their doctor. And, and by the way, the doctor isn't embarrassed about it. It's the patient that's embarrassed about it. So, um, you know, patients need to get over that embarrassment and engage with their oncologist. If, you know, typically what's going to probably happen, they're going to recommend fiber or stool softeners or an over-the-counter laxative. If those things don't work, it's time to see either your primary care physician or a gastroenterologist. And certainly if you've tried multiple over-the-counter remedies and or prescription remedies, it's time to see a gastroenterologist for sure. You just sort of got into a little bit of this, but I think what everybody really wants to know from this podcast is, so how do we manage constipation? As you said, there are a lot of medicines. Uh, people talk about supplements. People talk about fiber, prunes, dried fruit fasting diets. So if you could kind of talk about each category and what you would recommend, I mean, is there a progression to this? How, what, what do you recommend? Yeah. So there is a progression. How long you got? <laughs> as long as we need, because I think this is really going to be helpful to people. <laughs> <laughs> Cause yeah, no, and you know, well, I'll, I'll try to lead you through this. And I think, you know, that I, over the years have really developed an integrative approach. In other words, I don't view constipation as only being most appropriately treated with medications. I think there are lots of different options as you allude to. So first and foremost is if you're able to be physically active, uh, those individuals who are physically active move their bowels more frequently than those individuals who are sedentary. So um, exercise, even if it's walking um, for variable amounts of time, you know, several times per week, if not every day, is is good. It's a, so. Exercise is now part of my prescription for every patient that's able to engage in exercise. Um, people talk a lot about drinking enough fluids, and, and I think that the take-home message for, for that is that if you're drinking more than a liter and a half uh, or, uh, of fluid per day, you're drinking plenty of fluid, and drinking more than that isn't going to really help. Now, on the other hand, if you're in a job that is physically active, so that increases your loss of water through the course of the day. 
and you're not paying attention to how much fluid you're drinking a day, let's say for the sake of argument, you're drinking less than a liter of fluid per day, it'd be a good idea to, to, to make a conscious effort um, to, to drink enough water through the course of the day. Because remember, particularly if you're in a physically active job, you're going to be losing a lot of fluid through the course of the day, and it's going to be important to replace that. You know, studies show that um, unless you're in the lowest quartile of people um, in terms of consuming fluid each day, that it doesn't matter how much you drink. So you have to be uh, really drinking very little for it to affect or cause constipation. But if you fit, fit into that category, it's important to, to step up the fluid intake. I don't mean to interrupt, but I do want to ask, when you say fluid, do you mean specifically water? Because I'm wondering if some folks are going to say, oh, well, I could drink Diet Pop. I could drink coffee. I drink two liters of coffee a day. Does that count? No, that's a really, really good point. And, you know, unfortunately, we do see patients like that. You're absolutely right. Like, you know, I'll, I'll say to a patient, how much fluid do you drink during the course of the day? And um, you know, get an answer back, something like, oh, about 12 cups. And, you know, which is always a clue for 12 cups of what, you know, and uh, it's amazing how much coffee or, um, or soda uh, a, lot, a lot of people drink. And um, I would say that, you know, the good news about coffee is that for a lot of times, it's a stimulant to help people to go to the bathroom. The bad news about coffee is that it's um, contains caffeine, which is a diuretic, which will make you urinate and lose more water. So um, coffee uh, or caffeinated beverages of any kind would not be the best choice if you were trying to make sure that you were to, that you wanted to stay adequately hydrated. So thanks for thanks for pointing that out. It's a very important uh, very important point. Um, I think diet, you know, also merits some discussion. So uh, there certainly are foods that one could eat. Uh, that can help you to be more regular, some of which you alluded to. So, for example, there are now several studies showing that individuals that eat prunes, probably four to six per day, move their bowels more often than individuals that don't eat prunes. Uh, so prunes are a good natural laxative. Apricots are also, dried apricots are also a very good natural laxative. They both contain a non-absorbable sugar with laxative properties called sorbitol. Now, the good news about sorbitol is that it's a natural laxative. The bad news about sorbitol is that for some people, it can cause a lot of gas and bloating. So what people just have to realize is when they, if they start on dried apricots or prunes, um, if, it, if they develop a lot of gas and bloating, it's because of those fruits, okay? Has anyone done any studies on dried mango? Because I find that to be a very, uh, have similar properties myself. Mango um, contains a lot of fiber and a lot of sugar as well. Um, I, I haven't seen any studies with, with mango, um, nor have I made that observation myself. But um, that's an interesting thing to, to note. I'll take that back and think about that a little bit. To me, they taste better than prunes and or apricots. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the thing that you and, and your audience may not know is that probably the the next best thing to uh, prunes and um, apricots is kiwi. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. So kiwi actually has uh, laxative properties. There are now several randomized controlled trials from Asia showing potential benefits for mild constipation and in individuals that eat two peeled kiwi per day. We're actually doing a just finishing up a randomized control trial, the first one in the United States, comparing 
kiwi fruit to prunes to uh, fiber supplements with psyllium so or metamucil. So uh, we'll be done with that study probably within the next two or three months, and we'll be presenting that data probably by the end of this year or early next year. So um, stay tuned. We'll have data from a uh, scientifically rigorous randomized controlled trial from the United States uh, later this year. We'll definitely look for that. Um, and, and I'm sorry, I interrupted you again. So. Oh, no, no problem. So uh, as I said, there's a, there's a lot of different options. Um, over-the-counter medications, uh, the ones that probably offer the best efficacy with an acceptable safety profile are osmotic laxatives. Those are things like polyethylene glycol or Miralax, which uh, people may be familiar with. Uh, similarly, um, uh, magnesium salts like milk of magnesia or magnesium oxide uh, is also a very gentle natural laxative. Um, so, and, and is actually one of my go-to over-the-counter laxatives. Uh, so, peg and magnesium are two of my very favorites to go with early on in patients, particularly that have mild uh, to moderate constipation. Um, stimulant laxatives can be very good, particularly for as-needed use, and those would be things like bisacodyl, or which is Ducalax, or Senna, which is Senecot, and many other um, many other um, uh, uh, Senna-based laxatives. For example, another thing that people don't realize is laxative tea. Uh, which can be very useful for some people, will contain some combination of senna, cascara, rhubarb, which is also a natural laxative, um, and uh, what's the last one? Um, I think that's I think that's it actually. Uh, but those are all. Uh, oh, um, uh, aloe. Sorry, aloe is also a stimulant laxative. So, yeah, if you look at the labeling on a on a laxative tea, um, you'll you'll typically see that either Senna cascara, aloe, or rhubarb, um, and those are all natural laxatives. Um, the stool softeners people talk about a lot, and I guess for really mild constipation, maybe that'd be useful. But um, certainly, if you're having more regular constipation, stool softeners are kind of useless. They don't really work very well. Um, and then fiber supplements, of course. Uh, so. Uh, probably the best data for fiber supplements is with soluble gel-forming fiber like psyllium or metamucil. But there are lots of other fiber supplements, and an individual can try one or more of them and see what works best for, for them. Now, you know, Not the same thing is going to work for every patient with constipation. As I mentioned earlier, it's a heterogeneous disorder, so uh, the solutions vary from person to person. The last thing I'll just talk about briefly is prescription medications. And the good news is in the last uh, 10 years, we've really seen an increase in the options that are available for patients. Um, there are drugs that increase intestinal secretion and improve constipation in that way. So drugs like lubiprostone or ametiza, linaclotide or linzess, Placanotide or True Lance, uh, and then finally a brand new one that just got FDA approved earlier this year, which is Prucalipride, uh, and that that'll be available um, commercially probably in April May timeframe within the United States. What would be the progression if somebody starts having mild constipation? My assumption is they could kind of try some things on their own, try some high fiber foods, you know, try maybe a laxative tea. And then if things aren't moving, so to speak, then they talk to their doctor and then maybe consider other sorts of medicines? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the first thing to do is to, again, try to become more physically active, 
and um, utilize those utilize that dietary advice that I gave you. That would be the first thing I would recommend. And then um, if if those things don't work, you, uh, stepping up to the o OTC medications that I outlined. But certainly if you try one or more over-the-counter medications and it doesn't work, it's time to see a doctor for sure. Uh, also, if you have so-called warning signs or alarm features, uh, so unintended weight loss, gastrointestinal bleeding, or you develop these symptoms new after the age of 50, then you need to see a doctor. Do you have any concerns about people diagnosed with cancer using Miralax? Um, some people on the discussion board have said their doctors told them not to use it, or is that only if people have kidney problems as well? Yeah, actually, kidney problems aren't a contraindication for uh, the use of Miralax or polyethylene glycol. It is for magnesium, though. So, for example, if you had um, chronic renal dysfunction, um, uh, chronic kidney disease, uh, you would you would not want to use daily magnesium because it can accumulate. It's renally excreted. But, you know, polyethylene glycol is very minimally absorbed. And um, so uh, most of it does not get absorbed into the body. It just passes out in the stool. That's, in fact, that's how it works to help you to, to, to draw water into the lumen of the bowel and help with constipation. The um, polyethylene glycol is labeled for short-term use, which is probably the reason for the concern on the part of physicians, but um, I can tell you that for those of us who do this for a living uh, and, and been doing this for a long time, we use polyethylene glycol all the time chronically. Um, uh, so I would have no concerns about, uh, about treating a patient, particularly a cancer patient, um, you know, with long-term polyethylene glycol. What about fasting? Some people have told me that, you know, intermittent fasting, fasting for specific times has helped them. Mm. Yeah, I don't know much about that. I, I'm not sure I can really comment on the, you know, the, the, the fasting thing. What I, what I hear more often is um, colon cleanses or purges. That I hear about. Um, but I, I've not heard the, 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 part, the bit about fasting. Now, in terms of colon cleanses and purges, I think there's no evidence of efficacy that that's beneficial. And in fact, continuously or repeatedly disrupting your gut microbiome, particularly if it's a healthy gut microbiome, is probably a bad idea. So um, I would discourage people to do that. Now, that being said, I have a whole host of patients with very severe constipation where um, I have them do intermittent purges. Okay, so there's a difference between somebody that is going to progressively accumulate stool, stretch the colon out, as I alluded to earlier, and where I want to prevent that from happening, and a person that has that's either otherwise healthy or has very mild symptoms, in which case I don't see value based on the evidences that exist right now to uh, subjecting them to colon cleanses or purges. Now, what about the squatty potty? For anyone who doesn't know, that's a little stool that goes around the toilet. You put your feet up so you're in a quote-unquote more natural position. Yeah, and it, it really does put you in a more natural position. You know, it's been long said uh, and, you know, it's it's um, kudos to the people that develop Squatty Potty. They, they figured this out. Um, you know, for many years, we've talked about the fact that American toilets specifically are too high. So um, because they're too high, they actually uh, put people in a position when they're trying to move their bowels that's unnatural. If you think about, uh, you know, ancient man, 
when they moved their vowels, they didn't move their vowels standing up or even in a semi-erect semi position. They moved their vowels in a squatting position. And the reason for that is because the angles created by the musculature in the lower part of the pelvis straighten out more in that squatting position. So therefore, the squatty potty, by simply elevating your, your knees and your feet, puts you in a more physiologic position to be able to fully evacuate stool from the rectum. So for some people, it can be very, very helpful. We talked about a lot of things, and I know you talked a little bit about order, but if there were like the top three things you would recommend to somebody who comes to you, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer, I'm, being, I'm in treatment, I have really severe constipation, what would you recommend? First, don't be afraid to talk to your physician about it and try to find some solutions. So you might even talk to your physician about it in initial time, be told to try this, um, some other stuff, and then come back in and have the doc not even talk, ask you about it. Okay, so you're going to have to be your own advocate on this. You know, with a gastroenterologist, that's one thing. We're used to dealing with this. We're interested in dealing with this. Um, we're going to follow up with you specifically about this. But I think for oncologists and primary care physicians who have a whole host of other things that are very important for them to deal with, this is not necessarily going to bubble up as something really important for them to address during their, their visit with you. So you have to advocate for yourself on this. Second thing is, again, be aware of uh, the, the approaches, the sort of holistic approach that I've outlined and not just focus on only medications, okay? I mean, medications are very important, but taking that more integrative approach is more likely to provide you with a solution that solves your problem. Um, and, and the third thing uh, is uh, if things aren't getting better, you really do need to see a gastroenterologist. Finally, because our discussion board members love puns on this topic. In fact, there is a whole host of jokes about constipation. I need to ask you what the best constipation joke you've heard is. Yeah, I hope this isn't already on, on, on the board. We'll see. <laughs> I didn't take a look at it beforehand, but um, uh, have you seen the new movie about constipation? No. Not surprising. It hasn't come out yet. Ah, uh... <laughs> That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Well, when when the podcast goes live, we'll have people uh, vote on how how amusing they found it. <laughs> but thank you so much, Dr. Che. This has been hugely helpful. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. I hope uh, I hope it does provide some some help and relief for people that are suffering with constipation.